You're going to need one of these books. I don't know if you've seen this before. It's called the Bible. And you're going to need one of these, whether it's on your phone, an iPad, or uh, memorized in your brain, or uh, here bound in leather. We're going to be in Matthew this morning. I want you to go to Matthew chapter 4, and we're going to start with the Word of God. Matthew chapter 4, beginning in verse 18. We're right at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, and you've probably seen this story unfold before, but let me read it to you. Matthew 4, beginning in verse 18. Now, as Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in the boat with Zebedee their father mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. There's an old saying The road to hell is paved with good intentions, right? Um, (laughs) You know, just in in the 20th century, mid-20th century, they discovered something, the cough medicine companies discovered something, that the cough medicine actually worked better, especially in children, in terms of improving their overall mood and helping them sleep if you add something to it, and that something is called heroin. And so literally, cough syrup was marketed with heroin because it really helped the kids, and the kids didn't mind taking the medicine. We know famously, right, that uh, Coca-Cola used to contain cocaine. Now they just uh, fill it with caffeine, so we're just as addicted, so it doesn't make any difference. Um, I was also reading about the fact that uh, in the 1940s, 1930s, uh, they introduced a new weight loss idea. If you swallow a tapeworm it turns out you can lose weight faster. It was all the rage. Doctors were prescribing it. Pharmacies were selling tapeworms and people were losing weight. And man, you do lose weight. And eventually they eat your brain, right? But it was, seemed like a great idea. Their intentions were right. I saw, I saw a, an advertisement poster, an old one, uh, for Hershey's syrup, which is being advertised as a diet supplement for children. So, so over time, we start to realize that all of our good intentions don't always end up in a good place, right? And, and how many of you have, uh, have paid for a gym membership that was seldom, if ever, used? You don't have to raise your hand. You probably don't have the strength to raise your hand. I understand. <laughs> but you know what? The, the same principle holds true in our spiritual lives, right? There are countless people who have been truly touched by the good news of the gospel and, and who have prayed a prayer to receive Jesus Christ as their Savior, but they never actually began to walk with him. And their heart was in the right place, 
They, they, they thought they were making the right choice. But what if Peter, James, John, and Andrew had heard the calling of Jesus, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And they said, amen, and raised their hands and shouted hallelujah and then returned to their nets and kept working on fishing. See, that's what too many of us have done as Christians. We, we've, we've embraced the gospel at some level. We've thought, well, well yeah, of course, I, I would like to have my sins forgiven. I certainly want to go to heaven. But we have failed to sort of step over that line where we actually begin to live differently as a result of the fact that we have a personal relationship with the God of the universe. And that's what Peter is going to talk to us about a little bit today in our study of 1 Peter when we finally get there. Peter's a great example of a guy with good intentions. If you remember at the time of the transfiguration, it was Peter, James, and John who got to go with Jesus up to the Mount of Transfiguration, right? And there's Jesus, Moses, and Elijah and the Mount of Transfiguration, and they're seeing this unbelievable thing in the glorification of Christ. And while all of this is happening and the voice of God is speaking from heaven, Peter goes, uh, excuse me, and he steps up and says, I have an idea. Peter always had an idea. I have an idea. How about if we build some like little um, huts here so that you guys can be out of the sun and be more comfortable? And Jesus basically said, Peter, sit down and shut up. <laughs> right? Or, or how about the time when Peter finally got something right? Jesus said, who, who do you say that I am? He said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. He said, that's right. He changed his name to Peter. He said, on this rock, I will build my church. And the very next thing he said is, I will be delivered over and I will have my life taken from me. And then Peter stepped up again and he said these two words, which should never be said in the same sentence. No, Lord. No, Lord. He said, may it never be. I, I, oh, that can't possibly be right. I'm against it from the beginning. No way, no chance, no how. And Jesus, who had just said on this rock, I will build my church, said, get behind me, Satan. He called him Satan. I mean, I've been called some names, but when God himself calls you Satan, <laughs> that's not great. So they're, they're at the Last Supper and Jesus is explaining what's about to happen. You're all gonna desert me. You're all gonna deny me. You'll all run from me. And of course, Peter steps up and says, listen, these guys might do it, but I'm gonna tell you right now, no possible way. I will never deny you. If I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And Jesus says, you know what? Before the sun comes up and the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. He says, no, Lord. He was good at saying, no, Lord. And then, of course, in the garden, he decides he's going to back up his words. They come to arrest Jesus. He pulls out a sword, swings it. I don't think he was aiming at the guy's ear. What do you think? I don't think he was. I think he was going to remove his head. The guy probably ducked enough and just sliced his ear right off. And, of course, Jesus says, Peter, if you live by the sword, you're going to die by the sword. Put your sword down. And he restores Malchus's ear. 
right? So, so Peter has experience with this idea that his heart's in the right place, but he usually says and does the wrong thing. And his intentions are good. He meant well. It was just his follow-through that was a problem sometimes. So, so Peter gets it. He knows that many of us have a very similar experience with God, that we say yes to him and then we live no to him, that, that we believe in him, but we struggle to follow him. And he understands this firsthand because he's been there. But the word of God makes it clear that the Christian life involves a lot more than good intentions. The Christian life is a transformed life. Those guys stopped being fishermen that day and they became eventually over the course of time fishers of men. How did they do that? By simply walking with Jesus day in and day out and Jesus transformed them into someone they were not when they first met. Their response to Jesus wasn't simply a matter of uh, accepting the idea that he was Messiah or raising their hand and saying, I want to be in the club uh, or anything like that, <clears throat> they actually changed the whole trajectory of their lives. I love the fact that the scripture says they left their boats, they left their nets. That means their livelihood. It means their business. And they even point out that, uh, that the sons of Zebedee left their father right there in the boat. Family stays behind, business stays behind, everything that I used to have as my comfort zone stays behind, and instead, I follow Jesus wherever he goes. Their primary focus changed. Jesus became their primary focus, and as a result, they changed. Something similar happened to Saul, the Pharisee, who was a persecutor of the church, right? He, he, he had been persecuting and putting to death Christians in the first century, and on his way to Damascus, he famously had an encounter with the risen Christ, and he was never the same. We are going to get to 1 Peter, but for now, go to Acts. Acts chapter 9. Let's look at this well-known story about Saul as he is about to become Paul. Acts chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, that is the church, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city and it will be told you what you must do. The men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice and seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by hand, they brought him into Damascus. And he was there three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. 
And the Lord said to him, get up and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias coming in and laying hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has the authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my namesake. And so Ananias went, prayed over him. The scales fell from his eyes. He could once again see, and God called him into a life of full-time ministry, very much like the calling that those fishermen received. Follow me, and I will make you the man I created you to be. Follow me. And he did. Everything about Saul's life changed that day, even his name. He would forevermore be identified not as Saul the Pharisee, but as Paul the Apostle, the follower of Jesus Christ. And by the way, his transformation would involve suffering. I always shudder when I read that passage because it ends with him saying, go and pray for him and then I'm gonna show him how much he will suffer for my namesake. That's not a great call to the ministry. That's the call he received. Transformed lives are the evidence of a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, before this gets confusing, let me make something perfectly clear. God does not ask us to clean up our lives in order to come to him. But once we genuinely come to him, he will most certainly begin to clean up our lives, amen? And, and listen, the church has room for liars and thieves, for gangsters and prostitutes and murderers and adulterers and con men, you name it. We all come to Jesus stained by sin. But once we come to Jesus, we don't stay that way. Somebody say hallelujah. The Christian life is a life marked by the process of transformation. Now, before we get to our passage in 1 Peter, yeah, we're really going, you're like looking at your watches, you're like, well, I don't know about this. Um, I wanna show you something from the book of 1 Corinthians. So we're bouncing around. If you're in Acts, just turn to the right, go two books to the right, you're gonna find 1 Corinthians. And I want you to go to 1 Corinthians chapter six. This is a passage that just hits me in the face every time I read it. 1 Corinthians Chapter 6, beginning in verse 9. Maybe, maybe in your quiet times this week at home, read all of chapter 5 and 6 and get the context of this, but we're just lifting these verses right now. Uh, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Let's read 9 and 10. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. 
it's just like this shocking two verses. He, he, just, he just comes right out and says what especially in the politically correct culture in which we live, nobody says, which is listen, if your life is characterized by sin, if your life is marked by sin, if sin is the thing that identifies who you are, then Christ is not the one who identifies who you are. And if Christ is not the one who identifies who you are, then you do not have a chance to see the kingdom of heaven. It's that simple. Now, by the way, we, we read this list of sinners, and, and, and I want you to notice something. Uh, these are people whose lives are characterized by their sin. They're, they're defined by their sin. It doesn't say somebody who had a little too much to drink at their cousin's wedding last month. It says drunkards. There's a difference. It doesn't say somebody who once took some candy from their little brother and didn't... Uh, own up to it. It says thieves. So this is not talking about people who sometimes stumble because that's talking about all of us. We all stumble, even those of us who are in Christ. It's talking about people whose lives are defined by their sin and rebellion against God. These are not acts that are mentioned. These are titles that people are given. Adulterer, idolater, thief, drunkard. And, and it may seem insensitive. And, and I know it's not politically correct to classify people according to their sin, but this is what the Bible says. And worse yet, it says that these people whose lives are characterized by sin will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. But it's people like that that God chooses to save. After all, who else does he have to choose from? Right? I mean, the, just flip over real quick. I, I'm going to get to First Peter. Go to Romans, Romans chapter 3. Some of you thought, man, I'm ahead. I'm going to go right to First Peter and I'll be there. <laughs> Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 9. We just studied Romans a few months ago. We, we covered this. What then? Are we better than they, meaning Jews, better than Gentiles or Greeks? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. So before we stand back in judgment of this list of people that are listed there in 1 Corinthians 6, by the way, not an exhaustive list. Whatever is your pet sin should be on that list too. But, but not an exhaustive list, but he gives us this list of people whose lives are characterized by their sin. And we look at this and we go, wow, well, no wonder they're not gonna see the kingdom of heaven. They're just, Filthy sinners. Yeah, just like you. Just like me. There is none who does good, no, not one. There is none righteous, for all have turned aside. That's what the Bible says about all of us when we're apart from Christ. The reason Jesus came to be a savior is because you and I desperately need a savior. 
That's, there needs to be a better amen. Amen. See, we desperately need a savior. So, so, you know, I'm always cautioning us against this tendency that we can have, especially as religious folks, that we look upon those who, who don't know the Lord and we wag our fingers and we, we look down in judgment. And then I think, my goodness, how in the world can I judge that person for struggling to live a godly life without the Holy Spirit? I'm filled with the Holy Spirit and I struggle to live a godly life. So, so judgmentalism has no place in the body of Christ. That being said, it doesn't mean there is not a distinction between those who have been set free from a lifestyle of sin and those who are still caught up in that lifestyle of sin. And when we are caught up, defined by our sin, we cannot inherit the kingdom of heaven. So if you're hearing this message today and you're thinking, man, I better get my act together so Jesus will accept me. Forget about it. It works the other way around. Once I accept Jesus on his terms, he begins to clean up my life. But be assured of this. Once Jesus is given the throne room of your heart, he will begin to clean up your life. He always does. Christianity is not about fixing yourself. It's about surrendering yourself and letting God transform you. Good intentions don't add up to anything, but there is no mess. There is no uh, uh, past history. There is no life that is beyond the transforming power of God once we surrender to his activity in our lives. So what's the message of the gospel? The message of the gospel is come as you are and let God make you new. That's the idea. So one of those men who were called by Jesus to become a fisher of men was a guy named Peter, and, and he went beyond good intentions. He actually left his boat and his nets behind. He, he actually answered the call to follow Jesus, and guess what? Jesus made him a new person, and he wrote this letter called 1 Peter, which we are now going to turn to. 1 Peter chapter 4. And by the way, Peter's life, the transformation that he went through, it involved suffering. We're in 1 Peter chapter 4. And he's going to talk to us, and he's been talking to us about suffering. And and I need to say this, um, the transformed life involves some suffering. And anyone who tells you that the Christian life is all about unicorns and rainbows and health, wealth, and prosperity is selling something because that's not what the Bible teaches. Peter knew that, and he made it clear in the letter that we've been studying the past few months. We're in 1 Peter chapter 4. Let's consider what he has to say beginning in verse 1. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourself also, With the same purpose. Because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For the time already past is sufficient for you 
to have carried out the desires of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Now, the chapter begins with that famous word, therefore. So what is that pointing us back to? It points us back to chapter 3, verse 18, where he makes a sort of thesis statement there. He says, for Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Jesus is our example in this. His assignment from the Father included suffering. In fact, we should say that suffering was central to his assignment from the Father. And the same is true for us. So we're called to have the same attitude as Christ had. Because Jesus came to the earth with a purpose in mind. He didn't live as if his time on earth was the whole story. He's the King of kings and Lord of lords. But he washed feet. Why? John's gospel tells us that when he knelt down to begin to wash the disciples' dirty feet, it says he did this. He wrapped a towel around himself, knowing where he had come from and where he was going. I'm just fascinated by that little statement that John sticks in there. Knowing where he had come from and where he was going, he stood up from the table, wrapped a towel around his waist, and began to wash their feet. There is something incredibly empowering about being sure of eternity. There is something incredibly empowering that will allow you to humble yourself to where you don't have to promote your own wishes. You don't have to follow your own fleshly desires. You can actually make your life about loving God and loving people when you know where you're going, when you understand what eternity is all about. In other words, his actions on earth reflected the fact that life in the flesh is temporary, but heaven is forever. And Peter's telling us to have that same attitude and engage in that same purpose. And if we're going to do that, we have to accept the fact that our time here on earth is not the end of the story. And it is so difficult for us to live in light of that truth. Because all we see is this world. This is what we know. And when people die in this world, we go to the funeral and mourn, and that's the last we see of them. And we go, wow, death is this mighty, powerful thing that controls everything, and we have no way to survive the the onslaught that comes from death. And yet, we just celebrated Easter last week where we were reminded that death is not the end. We got to keep that in mind in the way we practically live our lives. And that's where I struggle. See, if if we're going to have that same attitude that was in Christ and we're going to be willing to engage in servanthood and suffering as necessary, we have to accept the fact that our time on earth is not the end of the story. And so as followers of Jesus, there will be times, lots of times, 
When we have to deny our fleshly impulses and live with our hearts set on eternal things. Look again at verse three. For the time is already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desires of the Gentiles, having pursued, of course, sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In other words, he says, haven't you had enough of this? The time already passed is more than enough. We have all had more than our share of experience with sin. We have all spent plenty of time, energy, and effort feeding our fleshly desires over the years. But as the great preeminent theologian, Dr. Phil, would say, (laughs) how's that working out for you? We know where fleshly lusts lead us to never-ending cycle of unfulfilling behavior. How many times... You have to wake up with a hangover saying, oh, I will never drink again before you actually make a change in your behavior. How how many failed relationships, how many broken hearts before you learn to give your heart to Jesus first and foremost and trust him with that? How many idols do we have to bow down in front of before we realize that they all have one thing in common? They're all deaf and dumb and powerless. And yet we bow down before them. And you know what? Anything that we give the place of God in our lives is an idol. Haven't we all had enough of trying to do things our own way? in hopes that it will somehow be satisfying, that it will somehow be fulfilling? Well, Peter says, it's time to change course and to actually begin to walk in lockstep with Jesus. Remember what he said when he called them. While you're following me, you will become someone different. Follow me and I will make you who I designed you to be. It happens while we walk in step with him. Of course, most of us, intend to get our lives on track with Jesus. We're just gonna start tomorrow. Like our diets, our workout regimens, quitting smoking or drinking or starting to read our Bibles instead of watching so much TV or whatever the thing is for you. The best time to do these things always seems like tomorrow. But the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Look at verse six. For the gospel has for this purpose been preached, even to those who are dead, and and though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the spirit according to the will of God. There are countless people who have heard the gospel, even at the writing of 1 Peter. They've been convicted about making some changes in their lives, and they died in their sin. They agreed with what they heard. They knew they needed to change. They intended to change tomorrow and they died in their good intentions. Listen to how James talks about it. If you just go to the left, like one book, you get to James. Go to James chapter four. James chapter four, listen to what James says. He's extremely practical. Verse 13, he says, come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. 
Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. This thing that, that all of us are so tempted to do when the Spirit begins to speak to us, when He begins to convict us, when He begins to redirect us, when He begins to call us closer to Him, the thing that we're so often tempted to do is go, yes, Lord, tomorrow. And James says, there is no tomorrow. Tomorrow is not guaranteed. He's not saying don't make plans and there's no value in planning. He's saying when you take for granted that there will be time tomorrow to make the changes God is calling you to make today, you're being arrogant and foolish. It's hard hitting, but God is saying something to us here. He is telling us to respond when he speaks. I think there are two very clear points of application for us in this. First, for those who who may be waiting to actually uh, surrender control of our lives to Jesus, God's word would say, what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? Don't you have enough experience with the misery that comes from investing in sin to know that's not the track you want to take even one more day? You've had more than enough time, God says, to try to find your fulfillment and all the junk the world says will fulfill us. And how's that working out for you? If you won't turn to Jesus today, what makes you think tomorrow will be any different for you? For that matter, what makes you think you'll even see tomorrow? You and I are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then it vanishes. Life on earth is short and eternity is forever. Don't wait another moment before turning your life completely over to Christ. If you're hearing this message today, I think you're hearing this message because the Lord has been drawing you. Maybe you've been thinking, I need to start considering the claims of Jesus. Maybe you've been thinking, you know what, my plan for my life is not working out so well. Maybe you've been thinking, listen, I I believe in all of this stuff that they're saying. I've just never been willing to take my hands off the wheel and move over to the passenger seat and let God be the driver. And what I would say to you, dear friend, is that there is no Christian in the world who hasn't been in the situation you're in right now. And the enemy is going to continue to try to hold you back and hold you back and distract you and call you in another direction and God says behold today is the acceptable day of salvation and so I implore you if you're hearing this message and you know that you have never really turned the control of your life over to Jesus please do that yes you'll have to follow him and yes while you're following him he will transform you And yes, you may have to walk away from some of the things that you've looked to for meaning and purpose in this world, and they have left you high and dry. Paul said he considered all the stuff he walked away from, all of his fame, all of his notoriety, all of his prestige, all of his wealth. He said, I consider it literally, if you read it in Greek, he says, I literally considered a steaming pile of poop. It's the nicest way I can say it. He says, that's what my wonderful life before Christ is compared to the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. 
What are you holding on to that is so precious? What are you waiting for? Jesus is calling you today, and if he is, don't wait another moment. It's so simple. It's, it's, a, it's a transactional thing that takes place where I bow before the one who is God. I admit that I am desperately in need of a savior and that I can't save myself. I, I confess that I'm a sinner and I ask God by his mercy to save me. Jesus has already paid the price on the cross for you. It's simply a matter of you bowing now and allowing him to be Lord. It's not something that has to be showy. It's not something that involves a crowd. It's something you do in the quiet of your own heart. It is a matter of bowing your heart to God and asking Jesus to wash you clean and make you new. And I promise you, and there's a whole bunch of people in this room who can say amen, he will wash you clean and he will make you new. The second point of application here applies to most of us who are hearing this message. You may have said yes to Jesus. You may have invited Christ to be Lord of your life. Maybe you've even been baptized, joined the church, did all of those things. But if in your heart of hearts you know you're holding on to some little corner of your life that's still under your control, God wants to smack you around a little bit today. (laughs) If we take the Bible seriously... We know that if we take anything and allow it to have the place of God in our lives, to surpass God for precedence in our lives, the Bible calls that the sin of idolatry. We've, we've made something an idol. And the thing that I have most often made an idol in my life is me. Some of us need to be awakened from our sleep and reminded That Jesus died, not just so we could get a ticket to heaven, but that we might have life more abundantly right here and right now. If that idolatry is keeping you from experiencing the abundant life that Jesus died to give you, now's the time to turn from it. Because anything that gets in the way is an idol. Isn't it about time to say yes to Jesus in every single area of your life? To forsake the desires of the flesh, which you know, you know, from experience do not fulfill and turn to the only one who can ever give your life true meaning and significance for eternity I'm talking to you Christians isn't it time to say yes to Jesus and actually leave your boats and your nets behind and say I'm going to trust you Jesus with everything to walk on from those things that used to define you and give your life meaning and start walking in lockstep with Jesus wherever he may lead and whatever cost may be associated with it. Jesus left the throne of heaven to suffer and die on Calvary's tree. He did it so you you and I could have life more abundantly. And as we saw last week, he walked out of that tomb He defeated death on our behalf so that we could actually walk in the newness of life. Isn't it time to drop your nets and walk in that new life he paid to purchase for you? Everything else is rubbish by comparison. It's high time to walk away from the steaming pile of rubbish and to walk in the joy of 
of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Let me invite you to stand. I want to pray for you. Lord, I, I want to thank you that uh, through Peter's letter, you, you just keep constantly um, sort of poking at us, poking and reminding and uh, redirecting our thoughts. For Lord, we live in a world where everything we can see is about this temporary life. It's difficult for us, for every one of us, to live in the light of eternity, But I pray, Holy Spirit, for a blessing upon these people so that each and every one of us would sort of just be bathed in the the knowledge of Christ, that we would know from moment to moment that who you are is better than everything this world has to offer. I pray, Father, that we would no longer insist on the idols that we have placed in our hearts, but instead that we would clear the whole place to make room for you. May you be king of kings and lord of lords in my life. May you be king of kings and lord of lords in our lives. And as you transform us, may we experience that new life that you died and rose to give us. For we ask it in Jesus' precious name, amen.